This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are into episode number 28 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, as always, Tucker Merrihew, and I'm here with my co-host in our virtual studio, Steve Nassar. What's up, Steve-O? Hey, Tucker. Thanks for having us back on the show. It's a rainy, miserable day here in the Rose City, but we've got a great guest, and I think we're going to have an interesting interview today. I think we're going to have a fantastic interview, but yes, the weather is uh, crapola would be a good way to put it. (laughs) I looked at the report this morning, and the next seven days, I'll have rain in it somewhere, so maybe someday we'll see the sunshine again, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. That aside, before we get into our uh, great interview... What's going on with you in the uh, real estate brokerage world and also in the agent side of the business? Yeah, so it's been an interesting week. On the broker side of things, I'm working on a new listing in Westland, and I was actually just there late yesterday. One of the things we really try to do with our sellers is try to guide them through the strategic improvement process. I mean, as you are well aware, Tucker, so much of our market you know, was built out in the 80s and 90s, and there's brass here and there. And sometimes there's so much that it's overwhelming to try to even address. Other times, it's been partially addressed over the years, and it's just a matter of a few more things to really help finish it out. The key in that process is just strategic improvements. Obviously, if they're going to spend a dollar, they need to be able to justify that they're going to get way more than that dollar in return, or else it doesn't make sense. So I'm working with these sellers in that process, and it's it's always kind of an interesting challenge. One of the things that's really key to me and my business in this is just having a great contractor partner. And I cannot stress enough to other brokers out there, we sell houses, they fix and understand houses. And so in my opinion, having a great contractor on your speed dial who will show up to a listing appointment when you need them. And on the buy side is invaluable when you get into repair negotiations or on listing side when you get into repair negotiations. Having that person in your Rolodex, I think is every bit as vital as having a great lender and having a great escrow officer. And so one thing I would advise and and encourage our listeners who are brokers out there that don't have that, and I get that there are brokers out there who maybe don't have enough individual business themselves to be on the radar of a contractor. My recommendation to them is pool your business with some other brokers and approach a contractor together. And that may be on the office level, meaning your entire office approaches a contractor and says, hey, you know, we do quite a bit of business. We need a good contractor that can really take care of us. You know, part of that equation is the contractor is not going to get every job and they have to understand that, but they're going to get a big chunk of them. So there's going to be times when they, you know, you send them a repair addendum that you received on your listing and you're like, hey, help me make heads or tails of this thing. You send them the inspection report. I do this almost on every listing with my contractor. And sometimes we'll even do a conference call with the sellers He'll walk us through it. He goes, you know, this seems fairly reasonable. This is typical to what's going on here. So it's just an important, important component. And it's been a huge part of my success. And I I would encourage any other brokers out there to really challenge themselves and think about that because 
It really is a key ally in the process. On the brokerage side, real quick, you know, we're making a couple proposals. We've talked here on the show a few times about how we're growing and needing more space. We currently have two proposals out, one in Newburgh. We've been talking about going into the Yamhill County market for quite a while. And we're actually now to that point where we found a space. We're making a proposal. It's right by the drive-in movie theater there in Newburgh which is kind of an iconic location. It's still open, right? I think they raised money a couple years ago to try and keep it open. If it I is still open, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's one of the few. It's definitely the closest to the Portland metro area, so anyone in Portland that wants to go to the old-school drive-in movie theater, that's where they go, and, and so it's pretty well-known to people. Obviously, it's well-known with a Newburgh, and this office space is literally out the back windows. You can see the drive-in theater, so that makes it kind of cool and fun. It's a beautiful office space. We're getting ready here in Lake Oswego on Meadows Road. We've been bursting at the seams in our current space, and so we're about to double that here as well in Lake Oswego. So those are a couple things we're working on on the brokerage side. How are things with you? Things are good, man. It's been kind of a crazy week. A couple of notable things, kind of on the heels of our conversation last week where you had a listing in the southeast, kind of in the battle axe price point that got bid a ridiculous amount over list. We had a project that we listed here in our office. It wasn't one that I personally did, but it was a project that I, I passed along to a, a rehabber that you know buys a lot of stuff from us. And we then listed, of course, in-house. But they got an offer for over 60K over list within about 12 hours of being on the market. Wow. And I, I don't want to say exactly where it is yet because it's not deal's not closed. But it just kind of goes to the point that you made last week that it's a little crazy in some of these closer in neighborhoods. And, you know, I don't know if this house is necessarily worthy of that offer, but the market's <laughs> saying it is. So, you know, congrats to who got it and, you know, who sold it. So either way, interesting for sure on the heels of our conversation last week. Yeah, for sure. On a, another interesting front, uh, we're about to start our townhome project in first edition. They're actually right around the corner from or down the street from our guest's office. And so I'm really excited about that. It's been a, a long battle with the Neighborhood Association, with the city, uh, with everything to finally get this thing uh, going. We've got to uh, finalize doing a sewer main extension, which will hopefully be taken care of in the next day or two. And then at that point, we can get our plans approved and we can start building. I think they're going to be really cool. We're doing them kind of house style and not townhome style. So they'll look like two separate houses that are kind of have a common wall as opposed to that duplex style townhome look. So I think it'll be a, a real plus for the neighborhood there. And uh, it replaces what was a, a real Boo Radley looking house in its <laughs> previously. So I think it'll be a big plus for the first edition neighborhood. And I'm really excited with how the plans turned out. Besides that, we've been, I think I've mentioned this to you before, Steve, we've been kind of courted a lot over the years by a number of different production companies. They are, uh, for whatever reason, they're very interested in the brand that we've built, the, the function of my business, and they've wanted to, you know, basically make a TV show around that for a long time. So a lot of the major cable networks and a lot of the uh, production companies that they employ to try and go out, find talent and create shows. And to this point, I've said no, 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 because they want to kind of put a square peg in a round hole. Uh, they want to produce the same type of show, and I just don't think our brand fits for that type of show. And so I've basically been saying no until we get somebody that says, you know what, I've actually got the balls to produce a different kind of show that you know I personally think is better, and they would too. So we've got a gal that's been chasing me down for the last few weeks and basically begging me to uh, kind of continue forward in the uh, production process with them. So I've got a big meeting with them tomorrow to see if we can get any traction on, on producing the kind of show that I would want to see if we're going to do something. 
So I'll keep you posted on that, but it looks like... I have some ideas on that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear them off air maybe after uh, we... I don't want to take up yeah. of our guest time here, but... Yeah. So I'll keep you posted. We can chat about it more next week as I know more, but pretty cool stuff going on. Cool. I like it. So as we kind of wrap up what's going on with us, I'm really excited to bring on to the show a great guest, somebody that, you know, me and Steve, we sat down and we met a couple weeks ago and got a list of people that we would really love to get on the show. And this individual was at the top of that list for sure. And I think he just is going to bring an immense amount of experience and wisdom to chat about specifically the higher end market here in the Portland area, Lake Oswego and surrounding areas. And so without further ado, Terry Sprague, welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you as a guest. I'm sure Steve is as well. Good morning, guys. Thanks for joining us, Terry. You know, I don't think we've ever done a deal, Terry, even though, gosh, you may have written an offer on a listing of mine a couple years ago. It was that one in first edition on 8th Street. And I know we talked for sure for about 30, 45 minutes. And we talked about the house quite a bit. And we had some high-level talks about how I pretty much had a black cloud over that house. I don't know if you remember it. But it had been listed perpetually for years and years by other brokers. And I kind of fell into it. And I didn't think there was anything terribly wrong with the house other than its history. And that was haunting me. So we talked about that. But we also talked about the high end market and how how you really focus on that and specialize in that. And we talked about some of the pros and cons about being in that high end market. So yeah, go into it, Terry. Tell us a little bit about what you specialize in, how long you've been in business. For our listeners out there who can't see what we're seeing here, because we're on Skype and we can see Terry. I mean, he is sitting there on the lake. He's got the most gorgeous corner view office right behind him of Lake Oswego. So very impressive location. Yeah, I'm jealous, I will say. (laughs) Good to be by water. I agree. Well, you know, I, I do remember that house, Steve, that you and I talked about. And, you know, sometimes there are homes that have their own urban legends, and you obviously did a good job of figuring out how to get past those and get it taken care of and get it sold. You know, I've only been in the business, I think, for about eight years now. My wife and I moved back to the United States in, uh, I think, 2006, and we were living in the West Indies and came back and tried to figure out what to do for a living and had done a real estate transaction and decided that, you know, maybe there was a, a different business model for real estate that would be more on an advisory level. So I wrote a business plan of how I would like to be interacted with when it comes to real estate. And and then I found out, oh, oh my gosh, you got to go work for a real estate company. And there's these things called principal brokers. And so I joined Windermere and then I had a business plan. Uh, Windermere is a great company. I was trying to figure out how to also work on the upper end and and, and have more of an international focus. You know, how do you get on the jet airplane with a guy before he actually comes to Portland? You know, through the process of working with Sotheby's for a while, I had a chance to actually own exclusively the Christie's real estate company. So I founded Lux Platinum Properties and opened the Christie's real estate company here in Oregon and now recently contractually in Washington. I didn't know you'd only been in the business eight years, but I can't say you've made a lot of headway in eight years, that's for sure. (laughs) Very, very impressive, but that's good to know. So at this point then, what is your focus there at Lux? I mean, it's higher end, right? Generally, the more luxury brand, that's kind of what Lux represents, correct? So the higher end definitely tends to, you know, navigate towards us, and that's been purposeful. You know, we've tried to develop a process of reaching a particular consumer, so you know, this business isn't really rocket science. It's kind of like owning a retail store. If you, you own a store that sells a particular product, you know, who buys that product and how do you get them into the store? And then 
properly merchandise them on, on the shelf. And, you know, I've tried to understand the science of reaching high-end consumers and then also understand the experience that they demand and try to deliver that process. That is really impressive, Terry. I have to say, I'm thoroughly impressed. I mean, to be in the business only eight years and to really be a dominant player in the high-end market, that's something special because you don't start there. I mean, your first couple sales couldn't have been high-end, were they? I mean, I'm guessing you, you slogged through a few townhomes on the east side first and then kind of worked your way up. No, actually, they were high-end from the very beginning. So I envisioned where I wanted to be and decided to work with a particular inventory right off the bat. And, you know, thanks to the help of some brokers initially at the office I started at, I I went around and I pulled up the office listings and I found out who had listings over a million dollars. And I asked for permission to advertise their listings within the company advertisement. And I purchased at least a half a dozen ads so that right off the bat in my first week of business, I had six multi-million dollar homes with my name on. And then I asked to do, I would go around and look at the high-end inventory and ask to do open houses at the high-end inventory. And I asked for permission also to, to brand materials at the house in my name as well. And the idea being that, you know, if these people already had these listings, if I could potentially bring a buyer through my activity or through my marketing, it's a win-win. So they would get permission from their sellers. So, you know, I remember in my, my first week, I actually sold a house to LaMarcus Aldrich for two and a half million dollars. Wow. And then that created a relationship with one of the finest builders in town, John Tursick with Stone Ridge Development. And then he actually called me up one day and said, you know, would you like to share an office together, which was kind of a unique situation, a builder and a broker. And at that time, I think I was less into the larger office model and maybe a more social networking and more more of an independent business person. And the idea of, of working with someone that was really knowledgeable in the luxury market was a great opportunity. And then so for three years, I had the chance to be introduced to his network of builders and and then also, like you, Steve, talking about knowing people that are contractors, meet subs, and third-party providers. And I definitely wouldn't be where I am if it wouldn't have been for that period of time with Tursic. And that was a great relationship. You know, he later on went on to a building that, you know, was a better place to park trucks. But that was a good start. Yeah, that's well, great. I mean, I think that the moral there is you kind of did some branding by association as you kind of started out and you just immediately started associating yourself with that, that higher end property, that higher end clientele and, and it really worked out for you. That's really impressive. Kudos to you, Terry. Seriously. So do you have, let me ask you a silly question. I mean, have you, have you sold lower end stuff? Do you have a price point that you will not go below that you would refer out to somebody? How do you kind of approach that? So, you know, I've been very fortunate Every year end, you know, my first nine months I did nine million. My second year I did twenty six million, and I've kind of never looked back. I've been very fortunate that at the end of the year, the numbers always turn out well, and the revenues there. At the same time, I think what I enjoy doing the most in this business—this isn't a business of rocket science—I enjoy creating opportunity for people. I enjoy the the response and the feedback from doing a good job for people. So there are occasions when, you know, someone will come to me either to purchase or to sell a property, you know, I call them normal folks property, and I really enjoy 
delivering the disciplines that I deliver to a multi-million dollar property to those people as well and helping them to have unusual results that maybe they would not obtain through other relationships. As far as listing them goes, you know, my wife, we met in Antigua where we lived and uh, she was from New York. And when we got engaged, she took me to Tiffany's in New York. And that was not where I bought our diamond, but I began (laughs) to understand the importance of branding with my wife. And, you know, if there's an anniversary, if I bring home a, a small gift in that blue box as opposed to maybe a typical retail diamond store or jewelry store. She likes that blue box. So I think it's all about packaging and merchandising. So if there is a a lower price property, but they're willing to take advice and make that into the small Tiffany's package, I'll list it. But more than likely, I would advise them and refer it to one of my brokers. Gotcha. Let's chat a little bit about the the high-end housing market in Portland in general. What's your overall feel for the state of it? So there are multiple trends going on, and the good news is that Portland, Oregon as a whole, is one of the most popular places in the country to move to right now. And, you know, as I go to owners' meetings with other Christie's owners in international locations and we talk about where I'm from, everybody knows where Portland is, and there's a buzz for Portland right now. And I think we have a lifestyle that maybe we take for granted. The good news is there's a lot of new money coming to Portland. There's a lot of technology money coming out of San Francisco and L.A., and there's a lot of international money, primarily the Chinese, that is coming to Oregon. And, you know, that's good because I think that we all experienced during the poor economy kind of a double whammy on the high end, and that was that the tail-end baby boomers who had the capacity to purchase high-end you know, were affected negatively on pricing when the economy took a tank. And at the same time, that was just about the time they were ready to downsize. So you have a lot of higher-end properties and or acreage properties throughout the state that those people are ready to move because it's a time in their life, they're tail-end baby boomers, and at the same time, the economy took a crash. So the good news, though, is there is a new consumer coming to town I don't think you could really rely on lateral movement to sell those properties. I think you need to get out-of-state buyers that will pay for a lifestyle that they're interested in. Because I don't, I don't think you can really rely on the millennials or the next generation here in Portland right now to begin purchasing that inventory. Yeah, that's interesting. With that being said, I mean, I know you work all over, for the most part, the Portland metro area, kind of the higher-end pockets and areas within it. What are the areas that you think are you know doing the best right now in terms of higher end or the most desirable maybe and then what are some areas that maybe you're seeing a little bit of less desirability well I mean I think the farther out properties are the most difficult to sell on acreage just because as a trend right now people are moving in and moving closer you know we've all been through a rough economy and uh, when I first started in this business, people didn't ask about what, what does it cost to maintain this property? What does it cost to you know, keep this almost commercial-like property going? People are asking those type of questions now. People are also more concerned about you know, what if we have another negative economy that impacts everyone? How do I buy this and know that I can turn this property down the road? So you know, obviously, you know, you guys were earlier in the show talking about properties that are getting bid up. You know, Portland's, you know, inner city and as close to the city as possible is extremely hot. There's not a lot of luxury in that area. You know, there's a lot of more historical homes, and but not a lot of 
three million, four million dollar homes. Obviously, the West Hills, Northwest Portland, Portland Heights, is going to be continue to be a hot market. And then, you know, wherever there's good schools, you know, Lake Oswego, Westland, benefit from schools. And so, that's always a draw. And I think as life becomes more chaotic in other parts of the country, you know, people are looking for an alternative lifestyle. And a, a little bit of Portland's Mayberry feeling appeals to them. What do you think, um, and, and this is kind of a selfish question, because we've got a, a number of multi-million dollar projects going in, in Lake Oswego and also in Dunthorpe, which both have very, very strong schools. I mean, Lake Oswego was voted best in the nation, I think, a couple months ago, uh, me and Steve talked about on the show. Are you seeing a lot of that outside money? Are they targeting Lake Oswego as a destination point, or are they kind of all over the place in your experience? No, I, I would say, I mean, you know, I carry a Wayne Gretzky card in my wallet that has been in the Caribbean Ocean and been with me for over 30 years. And Wayne Gretzky said, you know, rather than focusing on where the puck is, I focus on where the puck is going to be. And so obviously my business model, you know, when it comes to the inventory I'm going after, I'm focusing on where I see particular positive trends. And when it comes to, you know, the consumers that are going to buy that, you know, I'm trying to figure out where are they coming from and who are they. I think that where there are great schools, where there's a sense of community, you know, those are going to continue to be areas that will dominate attracting people that are relocating to Portland. Yeah, I think that that's a big thing. I mean, we we did a lot, and I think we actually met a number of years ago at a property that we did in Portland. It wasn't, you know, luxury, but it was higher end in, in Laurelhurst area. And yeah. we kind of dialed back doing Portland projects Mainly because, you know, I wanted to hedge against an eventual slowing of the market. And I always felt that, you know, kind of the trendier spots that don't have as many underlying fundamentals that are the way they should be to support a higher end product. You know, I wanted to kind of get away from that and get to those areas where, you know, the fundamentals are very strong. And, you know, it's an area that's already built into itself. It's not gentrifying. It's not improving. It's always been platinum, so to speak. And so, that's one of the reasons why we have decided to, you know, really just focus our efforts in Lake Oswego and Dunthorpe. And I think you kind of echoed, you know, the reason why I did that in your answer there, that it's, you know, it's always going to be a destination type place, uh, especially if you have the school district that you can move to. You can send your kids to great schools and you don't have to pay 15 to 20 grand a year for tuition to go to a private high school. Mm-hmm. Terry, I'm going to piggyback Tucker's question there as well. And I'm going to ask a selfish question on Tucker's behalf because, he, again, he builds high-end homes. And I'm just kind of curious the answer of, of this myself. But what do you find to be the sweet spot price-wise? Obviously, it's real flashy and fun to have a $5 million you know, property or even a $10 million property in Portland. But, but there's also a lot less money in those price ranges. This kind of piggybacks back to our conversation two years ago. And what would you say is the the sweet spot where it's it's a nice high end price point, but there's also a pretty good pool of buyers for that amount? Well, that's a good question because you know I often say you know yesterday's three million, today's two million, yesterday's two million is today's one five, and yesterday's one five is today's one two. You know, consumers have changed their comfort levels in regards to how much they're willing to be leveraged. And yeah, it's just a supply and demand thing. So, you know, you could be into hard costs at a much higher number than what you're just going to sell a property for right now because, you know, there's a limitation as to what people are going to spend. And and obviously there's less oxygen. The higher you go in price, there's less consumers. You know, I had a client that had an $8 million property and I said, you know, you, you know most of the wealthy people in Portland. How many of your buddies, and he's a telling baby mover, think it's a good idea to buy an $8 million property today? 
in Portland. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> That's so, the key there, too. Yeah, good point. And so, you know, it's going to come down to we're going to have to find that, that vortex, that space where, you know, someone perceives future value and, you know, is willing to pay for that. I mean, to me, 1.5 is candy. You know, that's a 30 to 45 day sell. And I think I average about a 1.8 million per sell or something like that. And, and obviously anything under a million dollars right now is, you know, super fun to work with. <laughs> but, but as far as, I guess, categorizing something as technically luxury, I think, you know, a million to a, a million two, you maybe start to call yourself a luxury home. But when you start to get into above one eight, you start to get into a different category of marketing mm-hmm. and time frames. You know, your clients have to understand that, you know, we're not looking at promising to buy your house in 30 days in that situation, be kind of marketing. We need to sign a 12 to 18 month listing because it's going to be my job to go out there and, you know, find that consumer. And it's not just a matter of that there are going to be multiple consumers in a, a broad population we may actually need to go out and find a consumer that didn't think about buying your house, but we've you know emotionally tied them in and brought them in somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this on the phone that day, and, and you said something very similar. You said 1.5 million is your bread and butter. That's like where, and and I totally get it. And you just reiterated that again today. How is the lending component on the high end market? I mean, I think when you talk about the downturn and kind of the freeze of the high-end market that we experienced, a lot of that had to do with financing and the fact that all the private money financing dried up. The only money that was flowing during the downturn, during the darkest days of the downturn especially, was government financing, be it you know conventional, Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA. That did start to change in dramatic fashion starting probably in 12, 13. How do you feel it is now? Do you think it's pretty liberal and what's your take on it? Well, I think people that should be getting financing are getting financing. And, you know, I'm a politically a pretty fiscally conservative guy. I don't think I could be pinned in a particular political hole, but I'm fiscally conservative. I wouldn't suggest that that our economy has grown as fast as it could potentially over the last eight years. But I'm actually kind of glad. I'm kind of glad it hasn't grown very quickly because, you know, I would much rather have a long drawn out, slow recovery, that people get back on their feet, people buy things they can afford, and, you know, we're not looking at a bubble market again. You know, my first five years, I was the only one making money at closing. That's what I heard every time. (laughs) uh, So what that's done for me is when I help someone buy a home, I'm very cognizant of what's your exit plan going to be. And so I like the fact the economy has improved slowly, and I like the fact that lending has become more difficult. Frankly, though, on the upper end, what we're seeing is not as much borrowing as before. I mean, loans in the upper end were so easy to get that a lot of people that shouldn't have bought upper end purchased upper end, and that was part of the crisis we just went through. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on the slow growth thing, Terry. I mean, me and Steve have talked about this on the show. You know, we watch the uh, appreciation numbers very closely these days because we lived through the last up and down. And so, you know, we're trying to, you know, tip ourselves off to any signs of potential uh, backward stair stepping. I don't think that we're, 
you know, uh, at risk for a major backward stair step, but we've got at risk areas we've identified in town that may go flat for a while because they got to catch up to themselves. But I, I think that uh, it has been a, a slow growth for, um, you know, the amount of inventory and how crazy the market is perceived right now. It's really not as bananas as people think in terms of actual price gains uh, across the board. Anyway, there are pockets that have jumped more than others. But um, I, I do agree with you there on that front. That's for sure. With that said, you know, the, the high-end market, it's pretty glamorous when you look at it from the outside, right? But when you're in it, obviously, there's a lot of things you love about it, and we've talked about some of those. But maybe elaborate a little more. What are the things or the thing that you really like about that part of the market? And then maybe on the flip side, is there something about the high-end market that, you know, maybe isn't as glamorous as people think and maybe you don't like so much? Well, the high-end market is a very expensive investment, first of all. And, you know, I spent $309,000 last year marketing about 25 homes. Wow. That's a lot of money. So, you know, part of becoming, at least having my sliver of the high-end market has been a commitment to deliver to people on the high-end tools and access to Mm -hmm. consumers that I've made an investment in. So that part of it is a large commitment. My particular style is I communicate a lot and strategize a lot and also show up a lot. So my clients see me a lot personally. So there is a very large personal time commitment to be the advisor they speak to and who shows the house. And you know what? Just because you're high-end doesn't mean the dog doesn't take a dump in the yard or the kids don't make their bed <laughs> So or the kitty litter box is dumped over. So... Uh, you get to do all the normal things of, of any other normal realtor that we get to do. <laughs> so, you know, I clearly just positioned myself there because I always felt that even during a good and bad economies, the top 1% tend to have less cyclical lives. And I am a late bloomer. I didn't get married until I was 45. I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old going to Our Lady the Lake. You know, I have to uh, do well the next couple of years. <laughs> you're, you're a busy guy with a lot of obligations. Yeah. yeah, so I've just tried to pick the space that I can be in that I can you know, create the most performance, most bang for my buck. And I enjoy architecture and I enjoy location. And I enjoy the science of trying to figure out how to expose that type of property. Yeah, well, I think that gives us a really good overview of why you're drawn into the to the higher end market, and a lot of people are obviously, but not everybody can execute like you have. And also gives you kind of the flip side, which is you know if you're going to be that guy for your higher end clients, because higher end clients that's what they like. They like to have a guy, right? And and that guy has to be service oriented. He has to be knowledgeable, and he's got to be available or she. And it sounds like that's the commitment you make. There is. Basically, you know, Sundays aren't off days. If your, you know, five million dollar client has some questions or concerns or needs some help with something, it's, you know, it's always on the table. And you know, I, I'm sure that they don't abuse it, but that has to be there. I'm sure for you. Yeah, no, I mean, I envy sometimes just, you know, more leveraged models, more team models that potentially you rely on other people to do other things. You know, I leverage as much as I can when it comes to you know, back office and those type of things. But when it comes to the interaction with the client or strategic opportunities, for instance, you know, all of my showings are agent to company. And the materials that each buyer gets a hardbound book, not a flyer, not an RMLS sheet, but a hardbound book with a professionally written description, imagery of every room, 
floor plans and data so that when they're back at the Nines Hotel looking over their information, you know, hopefully when they look at that hardbound book with the Christie's logo on it, it carries a little cachet and they remember that. I'm also there to listen to the broker that's showing the house, you know, in a very professional, cooperative way. If that broker's showing a house, that broker wants to sell that house. And as long as the broker sees my interaction as a benefit to that broker, helping him or her have knowledge about the location, the home itself. You know, we work in a marketplace right now that obviously it was old school. There was an RMLS book and people controlled the inventory. And you went to somebody and they, you couldn't see inventory unless you had that book. Now with data distribution, we have the internet. And now we have buyer's brokers and we have people that are reaching out to people to get advice to go see homes that may not necessarily understand a particular marketplace or a location. So by being there at the home, you know, you can translate what wouldn't have been an opportunity into a deal by helping empower that broker that's visiting and helping that buyer be knowledgeable of the home you're showing. So, you know, I feel it's really important that I be there in those moments and try to put deals together. I don't carry a lot of inventory. I carry 10, 12 listings at a time. Yet I turn three or four or, you know, four or five million a, a month at a time. So I'm turning about a quarter of my inventory every month. That's a healthy inventory, just so you know. By, by most brokers' counts, even if they're $300,000 listings, having 10 to 12 listings isn't, isn't a low number. Hey, Terry, and you bring up a good point. So are you saying that on agent accompanied, you more often than not are the one there? Yes. Okay. That is one of the components that I think makes the high-end market such a unique animal. I've had several high-end listings. I agree with you. When you say the, when I think of a dollar price point that jumps it to high-end, I think about 1.2 is kind of that breaking point. I've had a few in the mid-1 millions, pushing 2 millions. Actually, we're working with one right now that's over 2 million. But I haven't had nowhere near the experience of you, but I've had enough experience to kind of be able to compare it to the other segment of the market. For me, the sweet spot tends to be the 500,000 to 800,000. We list a lot of properties in there and have a pretty good system for getting those through. What I've learned about the high-end market is is some of the some of the challenges with it is it is almost like I always joke it's like birthing a baby to get one from listing to closing. Because it is such a monstrous investment that somebody is making. And also what I've experienced with my limited experience, I will be honest there, is you typically are dealing with a buyer and a seller who in their own right are very successful individuals and are used to getting their way. They're either successful or they're trust fund babies of some sort. Whatever the case, they're used to getting their way. So the negotiations can take a little bit different dynamic with people in that regard. And then, of course, the agent-accompanied component, just the sheer having to be there for all those showings. And the other thing that I noticed about the high-end market is those houses take a while to prepare for a showing. I had one, I had a $1.5 million listing that we had a routine that was 30 to 45 minutes just to get there, turn on the lights. It wasn't vacant, but it was a second home of my sellers. They were out of the area, so we had the key. We would show up for agent accompanied, and it was a 45-minute routine to turn on all the lights, turn on the pool, the waterfall, bring down the movie theater, and turn it on, and get it going, and just the whole the whole process. So, it is a unique market, and it's good that you're able to be there for that. Well, and the preparation for the listings is also, you know, it's not like you can do the paperwork and be on the RMLS in 72 hours. 
you know, it takes three weeks to a month to get a, a high end listing ready to go on the market. The big component is that you're working with sellers. If you're working with a listing, that you have great communication with them, and, and right from the very beginning, you give them the most honest advice, and you set up a relationship that look. I'm going to set up a chessboard, and once I've executed that chessboard and I begin to move the players, uh, you and I are going to communicate, and that you need to be willing to participate in the process of getting this house sold down the road. And I guess I've kind of started my career picking up the crumbs of a lot of successful high-end brokers and trying to be the last guy. But when I list the first time, I want to be the last guy too. And part of that is an agreement with the seller that you're going to strategize on a regular basis and that you're going to take actions to get the job done and staying on the shelf a long time to no one's benefit. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Let's move on to one last question and we'll let you get going here, Terry. Are you familiar with this year's Street of Dreams? Sure. Tell us what your thoughts are on it. I personally think it's going to be one of the better ones in probably over a decade. What do you think? I think it could be one of the best locations ever. I don't think that we'll find another piece of land like that. Or maybe we will. It's kind of amazing how they pop up. I always think there's no more land. And then all of a sudden somebody finds something amazing. But I do think that you know, with the dead-on Mount Hood views and overlooking a vineyard and a gated community, for nine lucky homeowners, it's going to be a special place to live. Right across the street from Oregon Golf Club, too. Yeah. yeah. I will say the year we did it, Steve, had a pretty cool view as well. And it, it wasn't as, as high end, but, you know, they were probably, at the time, I think we sold ours for a little over $1.8 It's probably worth somewhere in the low twos now, I would guess. But, you know, they've had a couple of good locations. This last year was, you know, it was a good location. I wouldn't say it was great in terms of how, you know, the views and things like that, at least comparing it to this next year's. Obviously, it's hard to top that, which is why. But I agree. I think it'll be a really cool show. And I'm excited to get some of the people that we're going to have on the show here in the future to kind of give us a, a lead into what uh, what's to come this summer for that show. Yeah, and it seems to me like it's kind of a breakout year. I think this might be the year where all the builders are kind of busting out above the two million price point. I'm catching wind that there's some houses going in the threes, maybe even, you know, creeping up on the four millions and that's been a long time since that's been the case. Obviously during the downturn <laughs> those price points came down dramatically. But even since builders have been fairly conservative and to your point, Tucker, I mean there's been some good ones. There's been some Lake Oswego just this last year and there's been some Westland you know a couple of years before. And they were building nice houses, but they weren't really going into that high, high price points that they had touched in the mid-2000s. Although we will be rebuilding the exact same home that we built in 2013 Street of Dreams in Dunthorpe. We're breaking ground right now, and that home, just by virtue of where it's going to be, will probably be between 3 and $4 million as opposed to between you know, 1.8 and $2 million. So you know, a lot of those houses can be the same house. It's just, again, where they're located, and that really dictates value especially when you get those bigger houses with bigger square footage. But with that said, Terry, we really appreciate you being on the show. It's good to hear your thoughts on the Lake Oswego market. I've got a number of homes that you would call candy that are going to be hitting the market here relatively soon, kind of in a staggered fashion. But we've targeted that about 1.5 mark as uh, probably the combined average, I guess, of price points for probably the next 10 homes that we're going to be putting on the market in the Lake Oswego area. So it's, it's good to hear that you kind of feel the same way I do about that. But beyond that, we really appreciate you being on the show. I think you shared a lot of great information. Steve, any last words or uh, questions before we let Terry go? No, we need to let Terry go. He's got about four messages that we've heard here on the show ringing. Thanks again so much, Terry, for being on here. And I truly hope that you and I get to do a transaction here soon. And let's keep in touch. One last point for me. 
you know, I learned best practices from other people. I didn't reinvent this wheel. And, you know, I'm a very cooperative guy. And, you know, I'm always open to sharing with other brokers how to position themselves and or pick their place and share ideas. So I think that one thing we need to understand is as this industry becomes more commoditized and people have choices and different ways of virtually purchasing properties, there's a reason why we don't fight wars with drones only. You need boots on the ground. And I think good brokers are boots on the ground. Also good cooperative communities of brokers that understand inventory that's coming up and understand and have relationships and can put deals together and potentially get in different positions in an offering situation because you are known and you do have credibility. Those are the things that will continue to set us apart and continue to keep our industry in business. So, you know, if anybody ever wants to chat about their own personal business or ideas how to improve themselves, I'm always open to that. I love that, Terry, about you. And did you join Masters in Real Estate, the Facebook group yet? Not yet. I'm sorry. You need to do that. You need to do that. That is absolutely what that is built to do. Yeah. And I think you will find that to be such a great forum for that collaboration. But I agree. And you and I talked off the air about it. And I mean, I in all my spare time, and I joke when I say that because I don't have that much, but I would love the idea of getting together with some great brokers like you, you know, quarterly or whatever the case, just to just to share some best practices and swap war stories and, you know, have a beer somewhere. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's it's often good to, you know, drop the defenses and there's plenty of inventory to go around and we won't be in business unless we have the cooperative nature of our business. So I think it's very important to develop that. And I will join that site. One of my flaws is I'm not a great networker. <laughs> so uh, I'll continue to try to work on that. Well, I'm sure Joe will be happy to have you once you do join, that's for right sure. Thank you. All right, you guys, thanks for your time. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us. This is episode 28. We're wrapping up. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. <laughs>